This is a production of WEDU-PBS, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota. Coming up next, a deadly shootout in Ybor City brings calls for reform. Governor DeSantis' poll numbers drop. Is anti-Semitism on the rise in Florida amid war in the Middle East? And as Florida Republicans celebrate freedom this week, how free are we? All this and more coming next on Florida This Week. Welcome back. I'm Eric Deggins, TV critic and media analyst with NPR and a former Tampa Bay Times staffer filling in for Rob Lorai this week. Our panelists are Deborah Tamargo, the immediate past president of the Florida Federation of Republican Women. Victor DeMeo is the president and CEO of DeMeo and Associates and a Democrat. Tara Newsom is an attorney and political science professor at St. Petersburg College. And Janelle Erin Taylor is president of Summit Communication Strategies and a former political journalist. Welcome, everybody. Thanks. Welcome. So in the wake of last weekend's deadly mass shootings in Tampa's Ybor City, one Tampa City Council member suggested that businesses in the entertainment district be required to shut down earlier at 1 a.m. instead of 3. But that proposal received lots of pushback at Thursday's City Council meeting from bar owners and employees fearing it would reduce their revenue and income. Community members criticized the move as a knee-jerk reaction that would do little to address the root causes of gun violence. The public comment came after two people, a 14-year-old boy and a 20-year-old man, were killed from gunshots, and at least a dozen more were wounded last weekend. According to the Tampa Bay Times, the shooting began just before 3 a.m. last Sunday morning along East 7th Avenue in Ybor City while the entertainment district was packed with people, many in Halloween costumes. A man was arrested on one count of second-degree murder with a firearm in connection with the 14-year-old's death. The suspect told investigators he got into an altercation with a group of men and feared for his life when he fired shots randomly. So, Victor, there are a lot of ideas for what city officials and local officials can do to respond to this shooting. You were there at the city council meeting. Tell us a little bit about what happened there and what are the good ideas out there for how to respond to this? Well, uh, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I do represent a lot of the restaurants and business owners in Ybor. So I, went, I did go and spend eight hours at city council yesterday during the testimony and the debate. Um, and uh, with all due respect, you know, everybody felt sorry for the, for the, for the kid that passed away. Um, but, but closing the bars at 1 a.m. would not bring that kid back. And, and Ybor City, look, I was born and raised in Ybor City. My mom and dad were born and raised in Ybor City. My grandparents were cigar makers in Ybor City. So Ybor City, to me, is the heart and soul of Tampa. And the historical aspect of it is, is unique. Uh, but, uh, but the fact is that these, my, one of my clients would have lost, if they closed from 1 to 3 a.m., they would have lost half a million dollars of business for themselves. And each of those bartenders and waitresses and uh, barbacks and all, they would have lost $200 each that, you know, a lot of these are single moms uh, raising a family. Uh, that's their income. Uh, it would have been hard on them too. And, and we actually, it was very quickly, but Tom, the time we found out that, you know, uh, Wynn Henderson, who represents East Tampa and Ybor City, made, came up with this idea. And I think it was a combination with the mayor's office as well. And there's a gentleman who's invested a lot of money uh, named Daryl Shaw uh, in Ybor City, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, in fact. Um, he came out with an op-ed saying, 
we should close at one. But you know, the thing is, if you close Ebor at one o'clock, those people are gonna go somewhere. They could end up at Soho, at McDittons. Uh, you're creating another problem that they're gonna regret later, or they could go back to St. Pete where they just went from 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. to open. So um, there were, at the end of the day, sometimes a knee-jerk reaction to, and, and actually, Congressman Carlson, to his credit, I mean, he really, uh, he really tried to nail the police chief down on really what happened. You know, they couldn't, they, because it's an active investigation, it just happened a few days ago, they didn't know if, if the kids were drunk, they were in a gang, um, you know, who, who, who initiated, there was a lot of unanswered questions for them to make this drastic decision. So at the end of the day, they all said, look, we're gonna go to Ebor this weekend because Ebor is gonna suffer. They've suffered through COVID, like a lot of the other businesses, sure, and, and sure. this, this wasn't gonna help. Yeah, and, and you know, there was some indication, I think, during that city council meeting that it might be illegal to try to do that anyway. Yes. So, Deb, right. I wanted to ask you, you know, Governor DeSantis has proposed some ideas. He's talked about increasing resources to the police or institutionalizing people with mental issues more quickly. Um, what do you think about some of the ideas he's floated, and uh, is there any appetite for gun control? Uh, legislation here? Well, there's no appetite for gun control, I can tell you that. But, you know, I was in Ebor on Saturday evening. I left Ebor about 9 o'clock in the evening when we arrived at Ebor. In fact, I had seen Victor earlier in the evening. And uh, I was remarking to my cousins, we were having dinner at the Columbia, how peaceful, how wonderful. It was a combination of tourists and locals just meandering around, enjoying themselves in Ebor. The weather was beautiful, the full moon. Um, but what has repeatedly happened in Ebor is the underage drinking and the gangs. So I think that's the root problem. Get to that and we can continue to enjoy everything that Ebor offers, the and history. Answer your question, yes, since I do a lot of licensing for restaurants, uh, the, the, the permits uh, go uh, till 3 a.m. So if you go from 3 a.m. to 1, there's no real legal method of doing that. And, and it takes two or three hearings to actually Im implement that. So yes, at the end of the day, there was discussion, as, as Deborah says, about, go. you know, after Parkland, right. we did pass gun control measures here in Florida. Uh, and that came up during the discussion as well. Well, there's a lot of guns on the street. Uh, one of these guns were, were stolen illegally. Uh, sadly, one one kid was just walking down the street, got shot and killed, and he had nothing to do with the, right, exactly. he had three bullets in him, and he had nothing well, to do with the I killing. mean, and you bring up an interesting point. So, Janelle, I wanted to ask you about this. I mean, Ybor City has often been a turbulent area. It's been a place that draws people to come and have a good time, and it's been that way for quite a long time. What does an incident like this say about the future of Ybor and its uh, status as a destination for people who want to celebrate and party and have a good time? Well, sadly, you know, this this is obviously Ybor City that we're talking about, but there are any number of places where something like this has occurred. And if you look to those places, you know, Orlando with Pulse, uh, Colorado Springs with the shooting that they had there, you know, these types of incidents, they happen and people recover you know there's a there's a sense of community um, that kind of breaks down barriers in these tragic types of situations where communities come together um, with they might not have the same ideas on how to fix problems but they know that the problem needs to be fixed so that togetherness I think helps with the healing process and Ebor will come out just fine so Tara I wanted to ask you quickly um, the families of one of the victims uh, and even the mayor of Tampa has talked about uh, some kind of 
gun control legislation. Um, what do you think about that idea in a state where, as, as Deb pointed out, there's not a lot of appetite for tackling those kinds of I don't. Solutions? I don't necessarily respectfully agree. I think that we have uh, polling that shows that most Americans and Floridians want reasonable gun regulation and that there is a balance between honoring the Second Amendment and the public space where we regulate it. Um, I think that there's a lot of individuals that are looking at red flag laws, laws that allow authorities to temporarily take away guns from people that can do harm as a, as a bridge builder between those two sides, gun advocates and those that want to keep uh, the public square a little bit more safe. And so I think that we really need to build bridges between those two groups and, and we should be looking at policy solutions that can honor both sides of the fence. We're hearing a lot of good ideas here, but we're going to have to move on to our next story <laughs> idea. Um, a new Des Moines Register NBC News poll in Iowa finds former President Donald Trump still has a big lead in the race for the Republican nomination. Among those likely to take part in the Iowa caucuses on January 15th, Trump is at 43 percent, with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley tied for second place at 16 percent. Trump has a 27-point lead over both, which is actually bigger than his lead in August in the same poll. Haley, the former South Carolina governor, has risen in the polls by 10 points in the last three months. DeSantis has slipped by three points. And in another poll by Morning Consult, the survey shows Ron DeSantis is one of the 10 least-like governors in the United States. According to Florida Politics, DeSantis is above water in Florida, but nowhere near his re-election victory margin. While a slim majority of respondents at 51% approve of DeSantis, he has a 45% disapproval rating here in Florida. So, Deb, I wanted to start with you. What do these poll results tell us about DeSantis's bid for the presidency? And does it seem that he's much, more po much less popular with Republicans outside of the state than he is in Florida? Well, I think that, you know, he's being overshadowed by Trump. Every time there is a hearing or an indictment, you have more people flocking to um, Donald Trump. So I think that's, you know, where the imbalance comes because of the unfairness of it all and the political nature of all of the indictments and the charges and so forth. So I think people, you know, you root for the little guy, you root for the Rangers to win the World Series because they never won before. So you're really rooting for Donald Trump to, um, you know, be that person that that beats the political system okay so put that away in all of the polls throughout the country when they ask for second choice take donald trump he's not you know he's decided to move to you know wherever um mallorca and uh and ron DeSantis rises and he becomes president so um, we just had a national poll at our National Federation of Republican Women, who was your first choice for president. It was Donald Trump. But then we also said, take him out, who's your choice for president. It was Ron DeSantis. When you take the average of the polls, they have Nikki Haley you know, surging in some polls, but when you take the average, it's still Ron DeSantis. So, um, you know, he's, he's in Iowa now. We'll see where that turns out. I think it's going to be favorable because he's walking the precincts, he's meeting the people in the caucuses. He is a serious person. We're living in extremely serious times. His background, you know, he was just an average, you know, kid, grew up, worked hard, uh, earned himself scholarships, went to the war when he did not need to. So he's been in theater, engaged in war. He understands how serious that is. You cannot play with war. He 
um, it's also run a huge state. We're bigger than most countries. Certainly, and, certainly, uh, I understand that. Uh, so but, but there are that some will questions rise to here. The surface. There are some questions here, uh, particularly about uh, what these poll numbers say about his popularity locally in the state of Florida. Janelle, what do you think um, these poll numbers tell us about how he's doing in Florida? Well. Anybody who tries to say that Florida is still a purple state, I think, is mistaken. We are, we have become a red state, um, and voter registration numbers bear that out. So, with that in mind, you know, I, I think that as governor, he still remains popular in Florida. I don't think that he has been hurt. I think the bigger question is going to come after 2024 when he still has an administration to wrap up. Um, and what is what is the post-presidential election Ron DeSantis gonna look like in Tallahassee? He, is he going to have this kind of unfettered support among the legislature to carry his agenda and sort of hold his water? I think if you see him drop out of the race or whatever happened, which I firmly believe that's what's gonna happen, unless Donald Trump, for whatever reason, removes himself from contention, um, you know, I think that we're gonna see an entirely different Ron DeSantis that has much less power because people aren't going to be quite so beholden to him. That's my, that's my crystal ball if I have one. <laughs> Well, uh, Tara, I wanted to ask you, um, DeSantis has begun to criticize Trump a little more directly. He's become, he's starting to push back a little more against uh, the front runner. Is that too little, too late? Does that make a difference for him? I don't think it makes any difference. I think the Florida, the Florida blueprint that DeSantis took out to the country came back rejected. That's why his polling numbers are so low. And now Florida is starting uh, to look at uh, DeSantis through the eyes of the nation and say, hey, we're being perceived as hostile to civil rights, hostile to intellectual thought. And so it's just too late for DeSantis to remake his campaign in that way. And I think some of these polling numbers are really uh, a result of the fact that America's looking at him using Florida as a puppet and that we're just a part of his presidential campaign and then unless he comes back and deals with difficult issues like um, home insurance and climate change and affordable housing that you know he's going to have bigger problems than whether he's wearing high heels or not. I wear high heels. I like them. I don't think that's on brand for him or not but um, I do think he's got bigger problems than just Donald Trump. I think so, his whole strategy is going to come to an end real soon. I, I just think his whole strategy to move as far to the right as humanly possible to try to outflank Trump uh, was a huge failure. There's billionaire supporters in the Republican Party who th thought the six-week abortion ban was overreach. It's the same thing that even Newt Gingrich did when they, the Republican Party went too far to the right and the Democrats came back in. Look, if you've been in politics like I've had for 40-plus years, you know the pendulum always swings back and forth. So DeSantis had his day. He's definitely, there's no question in my mind, he's on the downswing. Uh, Janelle mentioned it. When, when they come back after he clearly is going to lose in Iowa and New Hampshire, we, we don't know what this wounded duck's going to look like. And I think the legislature's not going to roll over and do what the heck he wants anymore. I think, and that's where we're going to see what happens okay. then. Well, um, obviously, we're going to be talking about this for a while. Yes. Uh, so yes. let's move on to our next topic. The head of Florida State, Univers Florida State University System, Ray Rodriguez, has ordered the campus chapters of Students for Justice in Palestine to shut down, according to an October 24th letter to university presidents. The directive, he wrote, was issued, quote, in consultation with Governor DeSantis. The letter said it's a felony under Florida law to, quote, knowingly provide material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization, noting that the national SJP has affirmatively identified with Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. 
the SJP has chapters on the USF Tampa campus and at the University of Florida in Gainesville. The chancellor cited SJP's Day of Resistance Toolkit, a document outlining advice and tips for campus chapters planning to host protests in support of Palestinians. The toolkit describes Hamas's attack on Israel as the resistance, and in a section advising SJB chapters on how to frame discussions about the conflict, states, we as Palestinian students in exile are part of this movement, not in solidarity with this movement. But the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, a group supporting the Palestinian students, says the students do not provide any material support to Hamas, just, quote, rhetorical hyperbole. DeSantis recently posted to X, formerly known as Twitter, that if elected president, any international student found protesting in support of a terrorist group will be stripped of their visas and deported. So Janelle, I'm coming to you. I know this is a tough question, <laughs> but is it fair to say that the Students for Justice in Palestine are supporting terrorism, particularly through uh, this Day of Resistance toolkit? And even if they are, is it fair to try to disband these groups? I'm going to spin a little here. Um, you know, I think what's unfair is painting everyone with the same brush. I think that there are probably no doubt students within those groups that um, are supporting uh, in some way, Hamas, uh, which is a terrorist organization. Um, but I think that a lot of the students you may find, and, and we saw this with the, the controversy surrounding Harvard, um, some of these students, they may not realize that you know, what they say is supporting Hamas. I, I think there is a difference between saying Hamas is doing the right thing and saying Palestine should be free. Because you can think that what Hamas is doing is terrible and that the loss of life is absolutely atrocious and still think that a two-state solution or something like that should exist. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. So to paint it with the same brush, that's what I think is unfair. Um, I think education, these are universities. I think education is the answer. To the students who are supporting Hamas for real, you know, have that conversation with them and say, look, it's, a, you know, it's one thing to support Palestine, it's another thing to support terrorists. So uh, Tara, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you know, you're an educator, you deal with these issues. Um, aren't colleges supposed to be a place where we have, you know, unfettered debate and we talk about uncomfortable issues? What's happening here? You know, freedom of expression has always been the bedrock of our democracy. It's been a part of the American experience. Um, we used to look at universities and colleges as sanctuaries for competing thoughts, and we actually thought it was healthy, uh, healthy for pluralism, healthy for us to understand each other, develop empathy, and then policy to flow from it. And I think it's a real shame that we've now uh, sterilize these institutions to be able to have this competing thoughts that might bring about understanding and peace, which is what everyone really wants. But I think that this is an, this has some something to do more with Governor DeSantis, and this could be a little peek into what kind of president he would be and how he would respond to these kind of conflicts, and it smacks of authoritarianism. So, Deb, I wanted to ask you, uh, there's been concern about, of course, a rise of anti-Semitic incidents across the country and even in Florida, and there's also been concern about a rise in incidents, uh, hate crimes against um, Muslims and against people from the Arab world. How do we draw a line between the free and fair expression and then the kinds of statements that might encourage terrorism or encourage anti-Semitism or Islamophobia? And I think that, you know, you pretty much hit the nail on the head, and it's what is encouraging violence, what are the plans, the plots, the secret meetings, and so forth. 
Um, unfortunately, the Palestine people made a decision by electing, selecting Hamas to be their leader in Gaza, and Israel took a hands-off after 3,000 years, took a hands-off off of that territory, and look what it led to. It emboldened Hamas, and they slaughtered people, innocent uh, people, and beheaded babies and children, and took hostages of children. So I think that you have to um, separate the legal protests, the rational, the the uh, deliberative uh, speaking and, and so forth from those that will occupy your halls of Congress, that will um, um, block traffic and jump on your cars like we've seen happen even in Temple Terrace. So I think you have to separate it. You have to tap that down. I think that's what's happening right now so that that does not escalate. All right. Well, we've run out of time uh, for this segment. We're going to have to move on. The Florida Republican Party is holding what it calls the 2023 Florida Freedom Summit in Kissimmee this weekend with all the major Republican presidential candidates scheduled to speak, including Governor DeSantis, and former President Trump. The forum is designed to showcase the ways the state has advanced individual freedom, but it also comes at a time when Florida is being criticized for removing books from school shelves, limiting the teaching of black history, and banning diversity initiatives. The summit comes after the state cut off all connections with the American Library Association, the nation's oldest library organization, after the group took a stand against book bans in Florida and around the country. So, Tara, the, this Freedom Summit is taking place in a state that has been criticized for developing, um, for limiting how black history is taught, for removing books from schools. Is there a certain irony here? I mean, <laughs> well, well, first off, freedom doesn't belong to a party, right? It belongs to each of us individually. And so I, if you use freedom as a concept to mask caging liberties, everybody can see what that is. And I think that's what you're alluding to, that the ultra-conservative legislative agenda in the state of Florida is anything but free. And the reason why uh, DeSantis's polling numbers are plummeting is because they're seeing that Florida is less free than it was before DeSantis was governor. We have a less ability to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion on college campuses. We are a revisionist history on African-American studies. Uh, we have a limited about ability for children to access books. And I think that's what's so interesting with the American Library Association. They have an American Library Association Bill of Rights that says everyone should have access to information no matter what age. That is being seen as not free, that's the very place where most of us seek refuge and in information. And I think that's what the country is really looking at in their assessment on whether Florida's free. Okay, Vic, we got one minute. Uh, <laughs> now, this is an event that's going to host uh, Ron DeSantis and former President Trump. What do you think is going to happen when these two guys show up in the same place? And is there going to be some pressure on DeSantis to take on Trump in a way that he hasn't before? That, well, that actually does remain to be seen. You're right. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm, I'm going to uh, pull out the popcorn to see who attacks each other. But, you know, <laughs> because actually, you know, Trump's famous for calling names of people that he doesn't like and to demean them and push them down the pole. So, you know, it's going to be very, and then there was a story here, Rissa, that, that, that Trump is going after DeSantis's home base. He is, Trump is a Florida resident. He lives here, and he's going to go after Trump's individual supporter, excuse me, DeSantis, Trump is going after DeSantis's individual report, uh, supporters and get them for himself. So that's going to be the, the fun of watching this game over the weekend, I think, personally. All right. Well, before we go, we always like to ask our panelists, what other news stories should we be paying attention to? So, Deb, I'm going to start with you. What's your story? of the week? 
Well, um, for those of you that knew Mel Simbler, you are certainly grieving um, this week. He passed away. He was a healthy 93-year-old, vigorous uh, pillar of the community, one of the most generous people that you could possibly uh, get to know in your community, a developer of many you know, um, community squares. Um, he was certainly a politician. He was a conservative. He was a man of family values. Uh, charitable man. He started the Drug Free Alliance. Uh, they put a lot of money and attention into things like fentanyl, human trafficking, and so forth. So we have just lost the most amazing person. And, um, you know, I. God bless his family. Thank you for that tribute. Janelle, what's your story of the week? So November 20th, um, Donald Trump is going to be appearing at a fundraiser with uh, Gus Bilrakis, mm -hmm. uh, who is a local congressman here in the Tampa Bay area. I think what's interesting to watch about this is how it affects politics in general. What are the optics going to be when you have a popular former president among conservatives um, who is also facing a mountain of legal troubles. So, you know, is that going to feed the conservative base? Is it going to um, have any negative impacts on Bill Arrakis as he's looking towards his next election? So I think there's some, I think there's some interesting takeaways to watch with that. All right, Tara. You know, I think the, the story is behind the polling numbers. Right now we see Biden and Donald Trump neck and neck, but I think the real story is uh, whether we're going to see uh, many of those voters actually come out and vote. There seems to be a great deal of apathy and despondency with our voters, especially in the Democratic Party. Republicans have done a much better job uh, riling up their voters and get out the vote efforts, and so I'm really watching to see what the next 2024 elections are really going to look like and what that's going to mean about the Democratic Party's ability to get out the vote. Okay, Vic, this is your challenge. Ten seconds. <laughs> What do you got? As a Democrat, to me, it's insurance, insurance, insurance. The legislature's meeting for another one of their, I don't know, five or six special session to try to solve. As someone whose family was in the insurance business, I work for the insurance commissioner's office, I can tell you what's happened now since the Republicans have super control of the legislature, the House, the Senate, and the government's management, the insurance company has gotten everything they want. They, they, you can't even insurance, I know, you can't even, <laughs> you can't even sue your insurance company anymore if they don't pay your claim, so. I, I love you, Victor. And thank you for joining. Us. Send us your comments at ftw at wedu.org and like us on Facebook. You can view this and past shows online at wedu.org or on the PBS app. And Florida This Week is now available as a podcast. From all of us at WEDU and our distinguished panel, have a great weekend.